0: Good morning. Not good enough. Good morning. There we go. My name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. If you are uh, a member of ours and were at the members meeting yesterday, then you know this is my uh, last Sunday uh, before the church ships uh, myself and my family off on sabbatical for the summer, which we are uh, incredibly grateful for. Uh, you also know, if you were at the members meeting yesterday, uh, that for uh, a lot, for months we've been trying to... Uh, navigate space issues and uh, be able to go back to two gatherings and um, and deal with child care overflow on Sundays. And so we have about 100 kids uh, and 60 to 70 on a Sunday, and we have uh, three rooms that we can use. And so do the math. It doesn't add up. We've been trying to um, purchase the red brick building, which I believe I'm pointing in the right direction right now. Um, okay, the red brick building over that way, turn that into our sanctuary make this uh, Sojourn Kids Space, and we wanted to be able to announce yesterday at the members' meeting that we have a contract signed, it's done, but negotiations were negotiations, uh, and it didn't happen, but as of 4.29 p.m. yesterday, we officially have a contract on the building, and uh, <laughs> um, and are grateful for it, all right. Um, we have been in a sermon series uh, calling Revival, uh, Ordinary Grace, an Extraordinary uh, Measure. We've talked about our need for God to revive our own hearts, and today uh, we get a picture of a revived church, and we get that picture out of Acts 2. And anytime you read a story, watch a story, if it's if it's well told, it's not abstract. You're drawn in, you're pulled into the story, you see what the characters saw, you feel what the characters uh, feel And Acts 2 is a pivotal moment, uh, a turning point uh, in the story of the Bible. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dive in, enter into the story, see what they saw, feel what they feel, so that maybe uh, we can live what they lived. Um, and Acts 2 is a well-known passage for an event that we call Pentecost. Pentecost was uh, a Jewish holiday, but this holiday wouldn't be like any holiday they had Celebrated before on this day, uh, the Spirit of God was going to come down and take up a residence, reside, dwell uh, within this uh, new community, this this new little group of men and women who are followers of Jesus. Um, and here's the backstory: the backstory of Pentecost is this that uh, Genesis one and two, God created the world and it was beautiful and it was good and there was harmony and rhythm. And then in Genesis three, sin enters the world and there's a fracture. There's disharmony, brokenness. And then throughout the Old Testament, God had prophets that came along and they said, hey, listen, one day God's going to make it right. One one day it's not going to be disharmony, fracture, brokenness. One day, one day I'm going to restore this, create this new creation. I'm going to restore it. And then um, God sent a Savior into the world um, who would die for us. And then in his resurrection, in his resurrection would launch this new creation, this new restoration of harmony and rhythm and beauty. And then in Acts 2, when the Spirit of God comes down in the church, here's what's happening. Harmony, beauty, rhythm slowly being restored in this new community that we call the church. And right after the Spirit came down, this man named Peter, an apostle, he stands up and he opens his mouth And he preaches the first sermon to this new community. And so what I want us to do is this. I I want us to pick up the sermon at the end of the sermon. uh, And I want us to treat it as a sermon, not a theological paper Peter's presenting at a seminary. We're going to treat it as a sermon, as if Peter were here preaching to us. So that we can let their application, maybe, just maybe, be our application. All right, let's go, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I said we we're picking it up at the end of the sermon. We are. Uh, let me, let me uh, fill you in on the sermon so far. Peter has been building a case, making an argument, trying to prove that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Um, and his argument has gone um, like this, uh, that these Last days have begun. Uh, His last days have begun, which was shorthand for, hey, that day when the Messiah was going to come and restore all things and make it right, restore that harmony, rhythm, beauty, order. It's here. You need proof? Look at what's happening right now. Look look around at Pentecost. Look what's happening right now. You you want more proof? Uh, Look at the resurrection of Jesus. You you, you still need more proof? Look at the ascension of Christ. And all along the way, he's citing Old Testament, saying, hey, listen, that day that they prophesied about, that day that that in the Old Testament the prophets were saying, hey, this day is coming. This day is coming. Doesn't this look like that day? It's this beautiful apologetic he's making to these Jews to say, this is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. And at the end, he throws an arrow, fires an arrow. I, I, don't, I don't do bow and arrow, so I don't really know how it works, but I appreciate you pull it back and then you let it go, right? And you try to hit a bullseye in the middle. Um, at, at the end of this, is that, I mean, I'm assuming that's right. Like I've only seen it on TV. I've never tried to do it. When he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, it was an arrow to the heart. It was a bullseye. So what happens? Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This arrow, this dart that Peter threw, it landed. And if we could put ourselves in their shoes, feel what they feel. You're right. What what do we do? Peter, what do we do? All right, Peter, I, I know. I know that me and my people are a party to crucifying the Savior that we have been waiting for. What do we do? What do we do, Peter? So he says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How do we respond? What do we do? What do we do? Peter, two imperatives, repent and be baptized. Repent here is essentially um, essentially be converted. In context, he's saying be uh, be converted and then be baptized. And uh, Baptism wasn't something new. Uh, they'd have known what baptism was, and in their eyes and mind, baptism was this. It's what D.A. Carson, brilliant theologian, uh, said. Baptism was essentially a conversion ritual where you became spiritually clean. And so what they heard was this. What do we do? You, you, you be converted. You stop rejecting Jesus as your Savior, and you come to him, and you receive cleansing and forgiveness of sin, and you get washed as you would in baptism. It's what a Gentile did when they were becoming a Jew, when they were converting to the God of Israel. They had to get baptized. He's saying, hey, come, come, be washed the way that a Gentile would have been washed. You want to be spiritually clean? Stop trusting in religion. Stop trusting in your ability to do X, Y, and Z. Stop trusting in morality. Start, start repenting, be baptized, come to Christ. You want to know what happens when you do? Can I illustrate what happens when you do? Before the 9 a.m. gathering, I was standing in the back right uh, and, and one of our members said, hey, hey, come here, come here, come here. And he pulled me over. I thought something was happening up front. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't sure. Uh, and he said, hey, you see that See that one right there? And he pointed to this three-month-old, and he said, that one's mine. That one's mine. You, you want to, you don't want to know what happens when you are repent, baptized, come to Christ. The Father looks at you and says, that one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. But here's what's interesting. Uh, When Peter used the word repent, when he used the word repent, he inverts the religious order, the religious process. Because repentance had a process. And here's the process. Recognize your wrongs, seek cleansing from God, and let that cleansing lead to a changed action. But the religious order was the inversion. Change your action in order to get cleansing from God. So that, so that, for any wrongs that you might have done. And when Peter comes in and says, repent, he, he's inverting the religious order. And now where he goes in his sermon probably came out of nowhere. Probably for these um, these Jews listening to Peter preach, this probably came out of nowhere. Verse 39. For the promise For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What what promise is he talking about? It's the promise God made to Abraham when he said, I'm going to establish an everlasting covenant. I'm going to be your God and the God of the offspring after you. And what Peter is saying is that promise, the promise that we've been waiting for, what it is that we have longed for and waited for, that promised Abraham that to be fulfilled, it's beginning right now. It will be completed one day, but it's beginning right now. This promise is happening right now. But here's the deal. Um, th- there is no, to the Jew, hey, there, there is no, who's Peter's preaching to, there, there is no change for you or your children. Like, there's no change. Like you, The promise is still for you. It's still for your children, which, side note, a whole other sermon for another day. Um, there's not a shift in how the Bible sees children uh, of the covenant community from old to new. The promise, it's still you and your children. But then he expands the promise. And he says, for all who are far off, which is shorthand for the Gentiles. Gentiles, not Jews. It's, it's not just for you. It's not one ethnicity. It's for the nations. And then he says, all who are, um, all who." All, I mean, I'm just going to read it because apparently I can't say it. All whom the Lord God, our God, calls to himself. That, this is a, a quote from the Old Testament back to Joel. That was applied to Israel, but here, here he picks it up and he applies it to the Gentiles. This is Peter saying, hey, you, you want to you know what the promise has always been about? It's always been about the nations. And right now, we're at this pivotal moment, this pivotal moment in the story of the Bible where now it's expanding. It's not one ethnicity, primarily, it's all ethnicities. That the gospel is not a white gospel or an Asian gospel or a Hispanic gospel or a Jewish gospel. It's a global gospel. And the turn that takes place is this, it's no longer, it's no longer, you want to find God, come to Israel. It's now God going to the nations to find you. You and me. It's a shift from come to Israel to seek God to God going to the nations to seek you. The shift is why you're in the room right now. It's why I'm in this room right now. And in verse 40, he goes on and says, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Uh, crooked generation, that's not like a statement about all generations. It's not like Peter talking about millennials one day. It's, uh, uh, it, uh, uh, it's this generation, the one who crucified the Messiah. He's saying, hey, listen, don't, don't follow the path of those who crucified the Messiah. Don't, don't save yourself from that generation. Here's the thing, why, why could Peter say that? Why why could Peter look at this group of men and women and say, save yourself from this generation? Here's why. Because Jesus didn't. He didn't. And when Peter, um, or when Jesus was on the cross, when he was hanging on the cross, Peter already alluded to what happened. Back in verse 37, to to the astute Jew who was reading this, they'd, they'd have they probably would have picked up on it. Um, back, back in 37, it says Peter preached, and um, as he was preaching, they were cut to the heart. You, where it says cut to the heart. You know what word that is? You know what word he uses there? Pierced. Pierced. The word pierced was a loaded word for the Jew. When they heard him say, when, when it says pierced to the heart, what was happening right there? No, this is a meaningful word to them. It traces all the way back to Isaiah 53 where this suffering servant, this prophecy about the suffering servant that says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. And when was he pierced? John 19. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Here's what pierced meant. Bless you. Here's what pierced meant. When the flesh of Jesus was opened, so was the heart of God. When the flesh of Jesus was opened, so was the heart of God for you, for me, for the globe. And so this this was their sermon. This was the conclusion of their sermon. Now what happened? Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Was this 3,000 random? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. If we rolled back to Exodus 32, um, here's the scene. Moses goes up, he, he gets the law, he comes down from the mountain, uh, and he sees the people uh, making a golden calf. They're making a golden calf, and it says, we, we need a God to go out before us. And the net result of that, on that day, 3,000 died. And on this day, Pentecost, when the Spirit comes down, writes the law on their hearts, 3,000 are saved. I think it's a wink at minimum. At, you know what this community is going to do? This new community, the church, you know what, you know what she's going to do? She's going to be the first to truly live the law. She's going to live it. So what does it look like to live it? There's at least three things. There's more, but we have time for three. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Here's the first thing it means, and I'll explain this. They were devoted to corporate worship, devoted to it. Every commentator I found says the article is there on purpose. Notice it says the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, the uh, prayer. In a moment, a few verses, we're going to see that they were in homes breaking bread, no article, that that everyone thinks this is here for a reason, and it was meant to represent the formal or the structural um, listening to the teaching of the apostles coming uh, for what we would now call communion, gathering together. Formal prayer together. Uh, it, it wasn't done on Sunday mornings, uh, but it was the beta version of what would become our Sunday gatherings, and it was a priority for them. They were devoted to it. And you know what devoted means? No, I'm devoted. It's to be attached to something. Like they were attached to it. Like what what they were attached to was gathering together, listening as the words, the teachings of the apostles through the Bible was preached and taught. Coming to the table, praying together. I think if Peter were to fast forward and come into our day and sit with us, he might, he might apply it like this. He might say, hey, you, you know what was happening? They were attached to this. And so when they weren't here, when, when Sunday didn't happen for them, there was a tearing in them. Which means, um, let me buffer it. Let me say it this way. I, I love skiing. Like if you ask me what your hobby is, I'm going to say saving money to go skiing. That's my hobby. Love it. I can't wait. I don't have a trip planned. I'm going to get a trip planned. It means that when I'm planning that trip, and if I'm going to miss multiple Sundays, missing multiple Sundays, it doesn't mean that it's sin for me to go skiing. It means that's a factor when I'm thinking about my plans. It means that what I'm not attached to is my vacation, and I'm getting torn from my vacation to gather with my community on Sunday. It means that I'm attached to this, and I'm being torn away from it to do something else. They were devoted to it. They prioritized it. Which led to verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to anyone, to all, as any had need. Here was the second thing. You ready? They met every need. They met every single need, which meant no one lived in abundance when someone else was living in poverty. I'll illustrate it this way. I'll I'll use me again. Uh, We we grill every week in my house. Um, Grill, I'm not any good at it, loose term. It, It means that no one eats three fillets a week when another member of our community doesn't know where the next meal is coming from. They were willing to downsize their house to meet needs inside their community. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And I know if this is your first time and you're like, hey, a friend invited me. This is You're talking crazy right now, Brandon. I can see where you're going. Can you imagine? What would happen to our anxiety level if we could look around this room or we could look around a living room on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday and know that the men and women in that room were so committed to me as I am to them that if I were in desperate need, they'd be willing to downsize their house to meet that need. Like, where does most of our anxiety come from? Most of the time, not all, most of it comes from like my future. What happens if, what happens, like what happens if I lose my job? What happens if there's a downturn in oil? What happens if, what happens if, what happens if? Could you imagine what would happen to that anxiety level if you knew I could look around a room and see a people who are so committed to one another that if I had to downsize my house to meet their need, I would do it. Like Dominic Soxa, you know who that is? The Channel 2 news person that I just date myself at almost 40 right there? I watch the news, okay? We'd be getting interviewed for the news that nobody here watches, Could you imagine, could you imagine what would happen to a little community if we could look around the room and know the level of commitment we have, the level of devotion that we have to one another as this overflow of the gospel breaking in, was that our anxiety was cut to pieces because we were so committed to one another that we could say, I don't need a yard, I would rather free up money to meet your needs. And I'm not anti-yard, we've got a little thing like a patch of grass. Can I tell you the number one barrier, I think, Um, the number one barrier, I think, to being the kind of community that's willing to have a line item in their budget that's just titled one another, money that we're saving not just for you know, a savings account or vacation or retirement, but money that we're actively strategically saving to meet needs inside this community. You want to know what I think the number one uh, barrier is? If we could do some straight talk for a minute, Sojourn. I think consumerism, treating the church as this consumeristic thing that's here to meet my needs, get my needs met. Um, You're here to serve me. Right, And so what happens is we, we get tired of the preaching here, and so we're going to go check out over here. Or we hear this great music over here, and we're going to check out over there. Or, we, you know, we don't really like the way they do ministry here. We like it better over there, so we're going to go check that out over there. And If the church is all about your needs, you will never look at your budget and see your budget as about others' needs. Ever. Period. Period. They were marked by a radical radical generosity, which led to verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's the third thing. The third thing is that they lived ordinary, everyday life together. And so when we stand up week in and week out and say, let me tell you what we're dreaming parishes are. We, we don't want parish life to be, we don't want church life to be, where you come on a Sunday and it's like the hour punch in, punch out. Uh, and then you go to somebody's home, two hours on a Wednesday, punch in, punch out. But it becomes just, we live life together as a people, as a community. We live life together, ordinary, everyday, broken, messy life together. You know why? That is what happened when the gospel broke in in Acts 2. Like we're not creating that as some strategy to be cool, whatever. It's what happened in Acts 2 when the gospel broke out, when eternity set in, they lived life together. So we're pleading with you, live life together. It's because that's how we live a taste of life that is to come. Like what happens in Acts 2, what happens right here, it is the beginning of what will be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. And so, in this little glimpse, this little moment where these 3,000 live like this, when they live like this, it's, it's not, and I, listen, I've read the rest of the Bible too. I know it gets pretty crooked pretty fast. I'm aware. But at this, for a glimpse, for a moment, you know what they got to do? They got to live life in the new heavens, new earth today, they got to live it now. Right here, eternity set in. And you want to know what a revived church looks like? It looks like this. It looks like a church that eternity has set into, has broken into. It looks like a church that's living Acts 2. It looks like a church living, this little moment right here, devoted to one another. Devoted to being together under the word, coming to the table, praying together. Singing prayers and song together. It, it looks like a community where nobody, nobody sits around at seven not knowing where the next meal is going to come from when the rest of us go out and eat filet. It looks like a community. It's a community that lives everyday, ordinary life together. And that doesn't mean like commune living or together 24-7, but, but it means that That church is not an event. It it means being the church is part of the ordinary, everyday rhythms of our life, and we do it together. We do it together. When a church does this, when you get a taste of heaven, when heaven breaks in, we taste eternity. Here's what it tastes like. It tastes like the first four weeks of this series. It, it tastes like a community who takes prayer serious. And, and, and like first money prayer is no longer a burden. And we, uh, we, we don't just pray for our needs, but all of a sudden the prayer life of our community becomes this like heaven-shaking, earth-rattling kind of prayer life. And, and then we become a community that takes prayer, like confession of sin, serious. Honestly about who we are, seriously. Because we're not afraid of being exposed and vulnerable today because that's how we're going to live 10,000 years from now. We, we see through the lens of eternity. Eternity becomes the green glasses that we put on that everything is shaded green through. And when that happens, the gospel gets Recovered. There is this beautiful recovery of the gospel from extreme right, extreme left, legalism, license, where it's I'm earning the favor of God over here or Does it doesn't really matter how I live. This this third way called the gospel gets redeemed, restored, and lived out. We get to live out the third way. The third way. This gospel gets recovered. And when the gospel is recovered, there becomes this unexplainable uh, um, unarticulatable sense that God is just here. Here. And I, like in the way that you can't go, you know what, if I put in the formula and I add it up, X plus Y equals Z minus D and God is here, like you just can't articulate it. You just, you just sense it and all of a sudden you just want to be drawn in because you just know God is there. Can I, can I, can I tell you why I'm here? True story. My wife is here. She'll stand up and call me a liar right now if I'm lying. True story. You want to know why I'm here? Because three years ago, in that really weird audition Sunday when you've got an audition, um, we, my wife and I sat right over there, and we, before anything happened, and we just got a sense that God was here. We just had a sense, like, the four other church. we just had a sense God was here. And if God is here, we want to be here. It's just the same, In our gatherings, in our homes, on Tuesday, on Sunday, as we eat meals at restaurants, it just becomes the sense that God is among us. And listen, I, I want us to never, never be aware of the presence of God among us. I, I feel like I overstated that one. Um, I, I want us to know that God is among us. I want us to experience the grace of knowing God is among us today. But, but I never want us to be so aware of it that, that we stop begging, oh, God, take up residence in this community. Like, be so palatable here that, you, that it's unavoidable that you're here among us. Like, five, 10, 20, 50 years from now, like, I just want to know God is here. And I want us to plead for it, because when we're asking for revival, we're praying for revival, renewal of hearts. At the end of the day, what, what that is is we're asking for what they experienced, in Acts two, a taste, a taste of the new heavens and new earth, a taste of what life will be like. We're asking that life to break in today, and that we might get to experience it, and maybe for more than a moment, and we might know. We might know God is here. And so what do we do? We can't create it. We can't force it. So what do we do? We live Acts 2. We we stay a people devoted. Devoted to gathering together, sitting under the word, coming to the table and praying together. We we stay a community. And I use the word stay intentionally because I, I don't know there's a lot we do better than this. We stay a community who meets the needs of one another. And we live life ordinary, everyday, messy, broken, at times dysfunctional life, and we live it together. We live it together until the day, until the day that what is extraordinary simply becomes ordinary. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We, we know that um, y- you can't just be a community devoted to one another. You can't just be a community who meets needs. And you can't just be a community who lives life uh, every day together. We, we know that that requires the empowering of the Spirit. And so we're asking um, God uh, that the Spirit would empower us, would strengthen us to live this life. And that we might get to be a community who tastes who tastes what life will be like when Christ returns and eternity truly breaks in eternally. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also pray for those uh, in the room right now that uh, are going, man, this is is just not for me. I know this was an internal sermon as such. I, I pray that they would know Uh, that in the same way that, that we have found plenty of room at the cross and plenty of room in this community, that there's plenty of room for them at the cross and plenty of room for them in this community. We love you. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.